The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning, students. My name is Dr. Stacy Bose, and I serve as the Dean of the School of Education. Raise your hand if you are in the School of Education. Where are you out there? Okay, thank you for being here today. I have some of your classmates up on the stage with me who are going to help with our scripture reading. Let's give them a hand. <laughs> These four individuals are the Teach Club officers for 2022-2023. Teach stands for Teacher Enthusiast actively collaborating and helping. And so this year's president is Amanda Berry. You can give her a hand. Our vice president is Julia Plachek. Give her a hand. Our secretary is Faith Rohr. And, and our treasurer is Will Nace. to be bringing our scripture reading to us today. 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 4. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. 1 Kings 19, verses 5 through 8. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a, and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that, of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. 1 Kings 19, part 3, the Whisperer, verses 9 through 14. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind over the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice and there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, 
thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Uh, verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nemesh you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Melohah you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who escapes for the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. All right, thank you. <laughs> Last spring, I completed a Bible study by Priscilla Schreier on Elijah. And it was a great study, and it was very encouraging to me in my own spiritual journey. And it's my hope today and my prayer that I can share with you some of the lessons that I learned from 1 Kings chapter 19. The title of this presentation is, When God Asks Questions, Lessons from Elijah's Journey for Our Journey. Before we begin, I just want to be quite open and transparent with you. I'm not a preacher. I don't consider myself a theologian. I did go to Bible college, um, but to be quite honest, the thought of speaking in chapel is a little bit terrifying, and so I was really blessed to have my four friends come up here and stand in the front with me as we got started. But last spring, I remember while I was doing my Bible study, as, uh, one morning I was reading and meditating on 1 Kings 19, and the thought came in my mind, a very random thought that said, wow, if you're ever asked to speak in chapel, this would be a really good passage to speak on. And as soon as that thought came in my mouth, or in my mind, immediately I thought, wow, well, thankfully I'm not a chapel speaker and I don't have to worry about that. Um, and so a month or so passed and I remember I finished my Bible study on Elijah. I went on to another Bible study. It was called Hearing the Voice of God. And I remember one morning again, I was doing my Bible study and I was thinking, and that day the message in my Bible study was on obedience and how we need to obey whatever it is that the Lord asks us to do. And again, that thought came in my mind, remember that day you wrote in your Bible study book, and I even have it here, the words say chapel message, and that came in my mind. And as soon as it came in my mind again, my thought was, well, thankfully I'm not a chapel speaker, right? And wouldn't you know it, later that morning, after I had been out at the park reflecting on my Bible study, I sat down at my desk and I opened my email, and there was an email from someone named Abby Holmstead. And I didn't recognize the name at first because Abby was new in her position. And she, as you can imagine, was saying she was arranging the chapel speakers for the fall. And as she was arranging the chapel speakers, she was wondering if I would like to share. And of course, I responded like all good Christians respond. I said, I'll pray about it, Abby, and get back to you, right? <laughs> but how could I say no? Because my devotions that morning were on obedience. And so I knew, while I said I'll pray about it, that my answer needed to be yes. And so as I was sitting there at my table and doing my emails and thinking about, well, I already know what I need to talk about because I had written these words, chapel message, in my Bible study book. At the same time, I kind of was just looking around and, and I, my eyes were drawn to the bookshelf in my dining room and I saw this little painting on the shelf 
And this painting, well, I had received it at Christmas from my daughter. I had focused on the colors, and honestly, I hadn't really even connected what the passage was that she had written on here. Last Christmas, many of you, like us, probably had COVID, and so it became, um, instead of buying Christmas presents for each other, we were making Christmas presents, as many of us were in my home, were in quarantine. And so she had painted this little painting for me and, and my husband, and the passage on here was 1 Kings 19. And I had never connected that those two passages at the same time, the Lord kind of had brought those together. And so I knew what I was going to speak on, and here I am today. I'm not a pastor, I'm not a theologian, but I'm a Christ follower, and I want to be obedient to him. So let's just take a minute and pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you are a great and mighty God. I thank you, Lord, that you are a powerful God, and I pray, Lord, that you would take your word today from 1 Kings 19 and use it to speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would encourage each one who's listening today, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, I'm a teacher, not a preacher, and so teachers, we like to ask a lot of questions. In fact, those who raised their hand in the School of Ed probably know that you take classes to learn how to write good questions, and you take classes how to ask questions and give wait time and allow your students to respond. And so I'm going to ask you some questions now as we get started. I want you to turn to somebody next to you and just think for a minute about these four questions on the screen. So turn and talk to somebody sitting next to you. Thank you. Thank you for your participation. I'm going to give you another opportunity to turn and talk in a minute, but thank you for bringing it back. So we as finite humans often ask questions to gain more information, to learn new things. But think about God. Why might God ask questions? God is omniscient. He knows all things. His questions are never for his own benefit to learn something, but always for our benefit. And as a teacher, I know that when I ask questions of my students, my purpose is to enhance their learning or to draw their attention to a certain point. And in this passage that we're focusing on today, we see God using questions to help Elijah see the truth about a situation, but also to refocus his thinking. And so as we jump into this passage, I want you to think of these two questions and kind of keep these in the back of your mind as we're talking about the passage. What can we learn about the nature of man from this chapter? And what can we learn about the nature of God? And as I began reading different commentaries on this passage, I learned something really neat that I would not have been able to pick up on my own. Um, in fact, um, it was written by a man named Dan Epp Tyneson, and he explained how this passage is really unique 
It's something called a chiastic structure. It has parallel yet contrasting events. And so I've kind of color-coded, I know it's a little bit small on the screen, the parallel events. In a chiastic structure, the theologically most important point stands right in the middle of the passage. And so in this passage, the center of our story is Yahweh passing by. The events in red at the beginning and at the end, we see Elijah running away from the world, and then at the end, him, running, his, him returning back to the world and his ministry. And between the events in red, we see the central theme in purple. There are parallel events throughout. So we see in brown, Elijah's renewal beginning, and then in brown at the bottom, Elijah's renewal complete. We see in green, the important questions that frame the chiastic structure. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then we see in blue, Elijah going out and standing and then Elijah going out again. But there in purple, we see that central point, that God shows up. God passing by is the pivotal point in this story. His presence brings the renewal that's needed for Elijah and his ministry. So let's take a look at the first four chapters of this passage. I've titled it, in Afraid. As we see in verses 1 through 4, which were read to us, Elijah is running for his life. Elijah is afraid. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is upset that he has killed the prophets of Baal. Instead of repenting when she hears the great miracles that God did, she's furious. She declares war on Elijah and threatens to kill him. When Elijah receives her message, he's terrified. Instead of calling out to the Lord for help, Elijah runs. Elijah's response may seem a little bit surprising to us if we know what happened in 1 Kings 18, the chapter before, where we see his huge victory on Mount Carmel as God sent fire to burn up the offering and God sent rain after three years of drought. Elijah quickly goes from this high mountaintop experience to a very low valley. Sometimes we're most vulnerable after we've seen God do amazing things in our life. The reality is Elijah had to be tired, exhausted, emotionally spent after his day on Mount Carmel, and then running 17 miles back to the city of Jezreel. He needed to rest, but instead he receives a death threat and flees. He runs 90 to 100 miles south to the town of Beersheba. There he leaves a servant behind and continues for another day's journey into the desert. One commentator notes that this was really a suicide attempt because no one can live long in the harsh wilderness south of Beersheba. Whether it's a desert or not, distancing ourselves from others when we're depressed is not a good choice. Elijah stops under a juniper or broom tree and asks God to take his life. He wants to die. He's depressed. He feels like he has not been successful in his calling. As he notes, I'm no better than my ancestors. Perhaps he had hoped to see a greater revival amongst the Israelite community, or even for Ahab and Jezebel to repent of their wickedness. Those unmet expectations may have contributed to his depression. His discouragement warped his view of reality. He feels like he's no better than his ancestors. Another commentator noted his misplaced expectations had derailed his emotional stability. He was haunted with self-condemnation disappointment and regret about his failure to achieve something God had never expected of him. Thus, we see Elijah go from the invincible prophet in chapter 18 to a frail, defeated human in chapter 19. 
Yet we can't be too hard on Elijah, as I'm sure you can think of examples in your own lives when you were overwhelmed and you went from a mountaintop experience to a valley. Let's take a minute before we move on and just silently in your head, see if you can fill in the blanks on the screen. In the next section, we see the provision. Elijah may have been ready to give up on his life, but God was not ready to give up on him. In part two, we see how God provides for Elijah. In verse five, Elijah lies down and sleeps. Sometimes when we're discouraged or even overwhelmed with life, sleep is the best cure. I know that for me, a good night's sleep can make everything seem a little better in the morning. We aren't told how long Elijah slept, but we are told that the angel of the Lord woke him up and told him to eat. What I love about these verses is that the angel didn't rebuke Elijah for being discouraged or for his faulty view of life. He simply ministered to Elijah's physical needs. He understood Elijah's humanity and provided. The angel gave him food and water and then left him to sleep again. As humans, having our basic physical needs met is critical for our emotional and our spiritual health. So after eating and drinking, Elijah slept a second time. And again, the angel woke him up and told him to eat. The angel said, the journey is too great for you. And when he finished eating and drinking, he traveled 40 days and nights to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. This mountain is associated with God's presence and is the famous place where God spoke to Moses. The distance from Beersheba to Horeb is about 250 miles. Isn't it amazing how God gave Elijah exactly what he needed for this long journey? I'm reminded of Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, which says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God lovingly sent an angel to care for Elijah's physical needs and to energize him for the journey to Horeb. God knew what Elijah's needs were. And you know what? He knows what our needs are, too. Take a minute and see if you can fill in the blanks. Part three is, the is my most favorite part of the passage, called the whisper. After the long journey, Elijah arrives at the cave. Here, God poses the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? God wasn't really concerned about Elijah's physical location, but he was concerned about his spiritual state. Elijah responds, but his reply doesn't really answer God's question. His response was, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's despair had distorted his perspective. He thinks that he's the only person left that's faithful to God. Warren Wearsby says that in essence, Elijah tells the Lord 
that he had experienced many trials in his ministry, but he had been faithful. Wearsby comments, if he was faithful, what was he doing hiding in a cave hundreds of miles from his appointed place of ministry? His response reveals some pride and some self-pity. In a sense, he's grumbling about the sad state of the nation of Israel. He has a narrow, an inward focus. He's pessimistic about life, thinking that everything depends on him. Interestingly, God never responds to Elijah. The Lord says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. It's not clear if he obeys immediately or if he goes out and then comes back in. But as the plot comes to its peak, we see first the strong wind passing by. Then we see the earthquake. And then we see the fire. These were incredible displays of God's awesome power. But then came the still, small voice, which prompted Elijah to step out again. As he does, God asks him that question a second time, the same exact question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds the same way again. Wearsby notes that God was saying to Elijah, you called fire from heaven. You had the prophets of Baal slain, and you prayed down a terrific rainstorm. But now you feel like a failure. You must realize that I, God speaking, don't usually work in manner that are loud, impressive, and dramatic. My still small voice brings the word to the listening ear and the heart. Yes, there's a time for the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. But most of the time, most of the time I speak to people in the tones of gentle love and quiet persuasion. Another commentator wrote that God's presence in the stillness can be just as real and powerful as in the cosmic forces of nature. His voice will draw you out of the caves of despair, disillusionment, and discouragement, and will usher you into a freedom of newfound reverence for him, a renewed and a hopeful outlook for the future. Take a minute and see if you can fill in the blanks. In the final part of the passage, we see the Lord refocusing Elijah on his ministry. As with the chiastic structure, we saw at the beginning Elijah was running away from his ministry, and now here at the end we see him refreshed and going back out into his ministry, back into the world. But what made the difference? God's presence in the low whisper caused Elijah to readjust his attention for he had taken his eyes off of the Lord and was focused on himself. But God's presence changed everything in this story. That event right in the middle where Yahweh passes by is the turning point. One commentator wrote, in the wilderness, in that still, small voice, God was telling Elijah that he continued to be significant to the Lord's divine purposes. The Lord tells him to get back up and go. And then he gives Elijah his new assignment. Elijah has three specific things that he's to do next. First, he's to anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Next, Jehu to be king over Israel. 
And third, he was to anoint Elisha to be prophet in his place. God had a plan, a new plan. He wanted to use Elijah to prepare the next generation of leaders. God also wanted to assure him that his work had not been in vain. In fact, he still had 7,000 people in Israel, all of whose knees had not bowed to Baal. Take a minute and reflect on the last part. Can you fill in the blanks? One commentator summarizes this passage as such. He says, this story calls out to those among God's people who are worn out, fearful, in need of revival. The story suggests a way forward. Eat and drink of God's life-giving substance. Return to the bedrock of your faith. Listen for God's still small voice. And then you will find energy, vision, and a renewed sense of purpose. It's easy to get off track, isn't it? Life gets so crazy at times. The Lord was able to help Elijah refocus and then go back out. What about you? What about me? We all get off track at times. I have a picture up here on the screen of a sand dollar. This is a sand dollar. In fact, I brought it carefully. Hopefully, I won't break it. I'm a teacher. You know, we have show and tell. We like to show things as we're talking. How many of you are beach lovers? Anybody a beach lover? Okay. How many of you have ever found a sand dollar on the Jersey Shore? Anybody? I have one, two, three, four. Awesome. It's not a very uh, daily occurrence that you find a sand dollar on the Jersey Shore. In fact, I love the beach, and I've only ever found two sand dollars in my life. I found one on the Jersey Shore in 2021 on fall break, and I found one in Panama many years before. <clears throat> As the day I found this um, was a day that I was walking along the shore, and it was a time in my life where our, it was really quite a crazy time in my home. Uh, my husband had just changed new jobs. We needed to sell our house, and we needed to find a new place to live. I remember walking on the beach that morning, having an in-depth conversation with the Lord, telling him about all my woes and all my troubles. Our house had just gone under contract, and that was a huge praise. But then the clock began ticking. Where were we going to go when we closed out on our house? I was discouraged, depressed, and overwhelmed. As a mom with a family of five, well, three kids, my husband and I, uh, we needed to find a place to live. And as I walked along that beach, I was really discouraged, thinking to myself, Lord, here I am, I'm serving you, I've spent my life serving you, and I don't know where I'm gonna live in a couple weeks. And I was really quite discouraged. And as I looked down in the sand, I couldn't believe my eyes. Right there in front of me, was this beautiful sand dollar. And as I bent down to pick it up, my eyes began to fill with tears, thinking of God's amazing goodness. He was reminding me of his great love for me, and he was whispering to me that everything was going to be okay. If he could orchestrate the details that as I was walking along the beach of Cape May, New Jersey, that I just happened to look down and see this sand dollar right in front of me, that surely he was orchestrating the details of my life and was going to take care of me and take care of my family. And so God used that sand dollar to refocus my attention, to tell me that he still loved me, 
and he still had a purpose for my life. And so this sand dollar has really become a cairn for me because it's a stone of remembrance to remind me of God's great faithfulness. And that's exactly what God did in our passage in 1 Kings 19. God used that gentle whisper to remind Elijah that he still had a plan. He still had a purpose. And so what did we learn in this passage about man? What did we learn about God? We see that man is limited by his humanity. He has physical needs, emotional needs. He has feelings. Man is fearful, quick to forget God's promises and become a lone ranger going off by himself. God, our man struggles to see God's big picture. Yet God on the other side, God is so loving, so compassionate. He cares for each one of our needs. He's powerful. He's able to do far more than you can think or imagine. And he's purposeful. Romans 8.28 reminds us that God is working all things together for our good. He has a plan. He is faithful. You might be tempted to think, well, this story is about Elijah. Elijah's a prophet. You know, he was sort of a special category. But James 5.17 tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And so we struggle with the same things that Elijah struggles with. In the end, we might see that we see that God used questions to redirect his servant and to bring him back to a place of ministry. But what about you? Might God be asking you the same question? What are you doing here? The semester can start to feel long around this time of the year. You're probably tired, exhausted, maybe even discouraged and depressed. Might God be asking you a similar question? What are you doing here? And maybe your response might be something like Elijah's. God, I'm here at Karen University. I've been zealous for you. I mean, I'm at a Christian college. Yet maybe in some way you've taken your eyes off of the Lord and what he has called you to do. Maybe your focus has become inward instead of upward. Perhaps you're overwhelmed with the mounting schoolwork or your job or a relationship. Might God be whispering to you that it's time to put your eyes back on him, back on his plan, back on his purpose for your life. And so as we close out chapel today, I want you to think of what's your takeaway. Is God calling you to get out of the cave in some way and back into the game? Let's think about the four different areas in this chapter. In part one, afraid. Are you afraid of something? Are you running from something? In part two, the provision. Are you discouraged? Are you exhausted? How has God provided for your needs? Or how might God be planning to provide? How about part three, the whisperer? Are you expecting God in a big, loud way? Or are you listening to his whisper? Are you spending time alone with him every day? Spending time in God's word and in prayer so that you are strengthened for what God has for you that day. How about part four, refocused? Maybe in some way you've lost sight of God's purpose or plan for your life. How might you need to refocus? As we saw in this story, God's presence changes everything and he might want to refocus or direct you in some way. As a teacher, I know that we learn by listening, but we also learn by writing. And we're going to step out of chapel in just a minute, and we're going to go to classes, and we're going to go to our busy day. And I want you to, before you leave today, to take out your phone, and I'm going to ask you to write down a small word or phrase that's your takeaway from chapel today. So if you can take out your phone and type in www menti.com and there's a little code there on the screen type it in what is your one word that you're going to take with you as you leave today go ahead and put it up on the screen and i think in the back they're going to pull the screen up so we can see it
code is 6361-9106. Refocus. God has a plan. Be fearless with God. I love it. God is in control. He and only he sustains. Be fearless with God. Trust. Rest. I am limited. He and only he sustains. God knows my best. God gives me rest. Provision. Thank you. Let's go ahead and pray and close our time together. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is powerful. I thank you that your word speaks. I thank you, Lord, that you love us. You know that we as humans get tired. We run out of energy and we're exhausted. I thank you, Lord, that you love us and you care for us. You provide for our needs. I pray for these students today. I know this time of the semester can be really tiring and overwhelming. We know that the end is in sight, but we're not quite there yet. I pray that you would speak to them in your soft whisper. Lord, help them to room to know that they're your child. Help them to know that you love them, you care for them, you have a purpose and a plan for their life. You have them here for a reason and for this season. I pray that you would encourage them today, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day.